Welcome to the Politics of Fish podcast, the American Sport Fishing Association's bi-weekly podcast covering the people, organizations, and issues that impact the recreational fishing industry. I'm your host, Mike Leonard, Vice President of Government Affairs for ASA. On this special edition episode, my guests are the entire ASA Government Affairs team. We recently hosted a webinar to update our membership on all that's going on in the policy and legislative world titled Sport Fishing Spotlight, an insider's guide to the critical policy and legislative issues affecting our industry. First up, you'll hear our expert consultant, George Cooper, with the D.C. firm Forbes Tate Partners, give a look ahead to the November midterm elections, focusing on key House and Senate races and the overall balance of power in Congress. Then, the members of the ASA Government Affairs team each provide a rundown of the top national and regional issues affecting the industry. And we close with some Q&A touching on emerging topics like possible lead fishing tackle restrictions in certain national wildlife refuges and a proposed national marine sanctuary off the New York and New Jersey coasts. While we covered dozens of topics, even still, we're only scratching the surface of all the issues we're working on. Uh, it's a lot to cover in an hour, so let's go ahead and get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome. This is Mike Leonard uh, with American Sport Fishing Association here. Uh, I appreciate you all um, carving out some time here on this Thursday afternoon to get an update of what's going on in the ASA government affairs world, as well as um, the policy world and the political world in general, as we'll hear a little bit um, from George Cooper on that. So I really just wanted to use this as an opportunity. You know, we send out a lot of press releases and um, social media newsletters and um, you know, speaking to what we're doing in the government affairs world, but wanted to use this as an opportunity to um, to give a broader overview of um, a wide range of things that are going on at this point in time, and uh, as well as have you know some Q and A. So what we'll do here is um, here in a minute I'll turn it over to George Cooper, who works with us. George is with the firm uh, Forbes State Partners in uh, D.C., and uh, George will give an overview of uh, sort of the current state of play in Congress, what to expect in November, sort of early signs uh, based on what we're seeing from the ongoing primary results that are coming in. Um, so just sort of a, a prognostication from George of what will be coming up here uh, with the midterm elections and what that means for uh, what we do uh, advocating for uh, those of you in the sport fishing industry um, uh, in front of Congress uh, on all the policy issues that we're working on. Then uh, we'll give uh, just a brief overview of uh, our government affairs program for those that are less familiar. And then I'm pleased to have the rest of our government affairs team, uh, our regional staff, um, to give an overview of some of the top issues that are going on in the region. We've got a lot more going on than what's being covered here, but we'll touch on the top three or so issues that are going on in each region. And again, have an opportunity at the end for, for Q&A in case you have any questions that come up uh, throughout this. But again, welcome everyone. Um, thanks for joining. Thanks for all that you do to support uh, our work here at ASA. And with that, George, uh, if you're ready to go, I will uh, turn it over to you. Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to risk trying to share uh, presenter controls with you. So if you just want to cue me, tell me when you're ready to go to the next slide, I'll I'll press the button. But um, good. And I'll turn it to you. All right. Thanks, Mike. So I'm um, mostly going to focus today on, on uh, how things appear to be breaking down now as we look ahead to November. Um, you know, one of the things we really try to do is we're thinking about American Sport Fishing Association, Association's government affairs agenda is um you know likely scenarios particularly as we think about changes in control of committees um those committees that we we work with most closely i think it's important to underline at the beginning that one of the reasons asa's government affairs work has has become uh, more and more successful over the years part of that has to do with the fact that our issues lend themselves to one of the last corners of bipartisanship left in Congress, which is in the conservation and outdoor recreation space and the fact that people really like sport fishing. Um, so the time we put into making sure our issues are dealt with in a nonpartisan uh, and indeed in a bipartisan fashion really continues to serve this industry well. So I mentioned that because uh, in all likelihood, we're gonna have a change of control in the House of Representatives but if we just look at one committee in particular where we spend a lot of our time, the House Natural Resource Committee, um, we've got very good relationships on both sides of the aisle. It's not the most uh, well-functioning committee on Capitol Hill, but we have good allies on both sides. And the same can be said as we look over on the Senate side. With that said, it is important to know who's going to be in control as we look ahead. And we're always trying to keep an eye on the ball in that regard. 
card. So Mike, if you want to advance, I'll just start by giving you kind of our latest take. And a lot of what we, we draw our insights from in terms of just raw data and information is from, from Charlie Cook uh, and the Cook Political Report. But just looking at basic numbers here, of course, uh, in the House of Representatives, everybody has to run every two years. So everybody's up uh, this November. Um, you've probably noted as we've gone along in the last year or so, um, uh, an increase in retirements, and those have mostly been Democrats. Uh, the number's pretty big right now, a little bigger than, than usual. Uh, we're up to 53, with 33 of those being Democrats, 20 Republicans. Um, you can see the margin currently is only 11, so it's not gonna take much for a change in control. And to just sort of cut to the chase, everything is, is still pointing in the direction of Republicans uh, taking the House. Um, you know, it doesn't appear to be shaping up to be the sort of wave that we've seen um, uh, historically in the first two years of a presidency. Um, you'll recall the shellacking that Democrats received in two years into Obama's first uh, term. And as you go back in history, you can find other examples of that. Um, Democrats did extremely well two years into Trump's first term. Uh, it's not clear that the numbers are gonna be as big as we saw in those two instances, but uh, I think you'd have a hard time finding anyone who doesn't still think Republicans are, are gonna take control. And that mostly has to do with uh, the state of the economy, if we were gonna just single it uh, in on one issue. Uh, things continue to be on a pretty discouraging trajectory, and that's just not good for the, the party in power. Um, so I did mention the high number of, of, uh, the, of retirements. The other thing just worth pausing to note is on the heels of our most recent census, there's we've been going through redistricting. 43 st states have now gone through that. There was some thinking that this was gonna heavily favor Republicans. It's ended up favoring them. Um, so far, uh, districts have uh, have been drawn that uh, favor 203. Uh, those districts are Republican leaning, and about 186 of them look Democratic leaning. But that's that's gone a little better for Democrats than had been expected. So if we go to the next slide, Mike. Um, with those raw numbers in mind, and the fact that it's not going to take <clears throat> that many wins for Republicans to uh, put the gavel back and McCarthy's hands or whoever ends up being speaker. Um, you can just kind of see the broad numbers here without going through all these names. Um, if you just take a glance at what are considered to be toss-ups, leans, or likelies, right? These are all the tough races. These are the ones getting the most attention. A lot of these are open, you'll note, um, uh, which is part of the reason they're toss-ups because you don't have an incumbent. Uh, the power of incumbency is, is, is powerful indeed but a lot of these are open, making them uh, more vulnerable for a switch. And you'll just see that there are just a lot more that Democrats are defending. If we look at those three columns, it's about 50. And if we look over on the other side, it's it's significantly fewer, something more like uh, 20. So this will shift around as we move along. Um, we've had some recent signals in some primaries. We actually had a special um, in Texas uh, just this week that flipped from blue to, to red with a Republican winning uh, a district now along the border. So, you know, we're, we're getting signs. Uh, we're seeing things continuing to point in the direction of Republicans uh, taking the House this fall. And, and we'll have uh, time for Q&A, uh, I know, at the end. So I'll just keep moving along here and we'll take a look at the Senate. The Senate is uh, much less certain. Um, you know, if if the entire Senate were up, uh, you, we'd probably be having a, a similar uh, outlook in terms of Republicans' ability to take over. But that's not how it works, of course. With the Senate, it's every six years, so you have clusters. So we have to go back six years and think about who was elected then and, uh, and who's up now. Uh, in the case of many of these Senate seats, you've got retirements, uh, and most of those are Republicans. So you've got six uh, Republicans and one Democrat uh, who are not seeking re-election. And again, if we think about, particularly in the Senate, incumbents have a huge advantage uh, in terms of winning uh, races. And so those are, those are uh, several of those states are actually also, 
well, I shouldn't say several, it's really just Pennsylvania that could truly be considered a, a toss-up state. But um, anyway, you just have Republicans defending more open seats. Democrats only have 14 open. Uh, we'll take a look at the breakdown here. Um, and uh, Republicans are looking at 20. So the, it just so happens the math right now is more favorable to Democrats. And it's worth noting too, that as we look at those 40, 14 Democratic seats, none of them are in states that Trump won in 20, just to use a recent barometer. Uh, whereas uh, with the Republicans, you've got a pair, I mentioned Pennsylvania, also Wisconsin are states that uh, Biden actually just won. Um, it's a 50-50 Senate, so, so it doesn't take much uh, to, to tip things um, to one party or the other. Uh, when we go to the next slide, Mike. Um, just to look more closely at the races, and it's it's a much it's 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 much easier to sort of prognosticate here race by race because it's not as many obviously as, as the House side. Uh, Democrats have a bunch of solids uh, that that they're likely to hold. You can see listed there, and Republicans have even more. Um, so as much as uh, Republicans are defending more seats at 20, and Democrat Democrats only defending 14, Republicans have more truly safe seats, as you'll see along that right-hand column. Um, many of you live in the states that are um, that are that are up for grabs, and I'm sure are sick of the ads you're seeing already. Um, I think in the following, the next slide, you're going to see why I'm actually leaning towards thinking Democrats will probably just barely hold on. Um, you know, the safe thing would be to characterize the Senate right now as a toss-up, but Democrats are looking a little bit better uh, uh, in some of these key races, particularly right there in the middle on those toss-ups. But uh, Democrats have been sort of relieved to see that Republicans have not put forward a great challenger for Bennett. So Colorado's looking pretty safe. Um, same thing uh, uh, in New Hampshire. If we bump over to um, um, the lean Republicans, many of you are in Florida and have a better feel for that race, I'm sure, than I do. Uh, Rubio's race with Val Demings. Um, and you've got opens in North Carolina and Ohio. Ohio's looking closer than I think people might have expected with Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance. But of course, that state has got, got a more red in the last several cycles. Um, I'll spend a minute on these toss-ups in the next slide, but you've got Kelly, Warnock, and Cortez Masto in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, respectively, all incumbents, that matters, and um, looking pretty good right now. Pennsylvania, wide open, really interesting candidates there. That's going to be a wild one. Dr. Oz and uh, uh, John Fetterman, that's going to be interesting. Ron Johnson's defending in Wisconsin, a state that Biden won, and uh, a guy that's been a real lightning rod, of course, um, generally speaking. So let's go to the last slide here, Mike. Just to give you a feel for why I think people are sort of maybe leaning in the direction of thinking Democrats have a decent chance of hanging on, can be measured in dollars, uh, what we measure lots of political uh, questions in. Um, if you just look at how uh, these incumbent Democrats, they're in that that toss-up column. So Kelly in Arizona, Warnock in Georgia, Cortez Masto in Nevada, you can see they're really crushing it on fundraising, which is not unusual when you're a sitting senator. Um, you, you can see what their challengers have raised so far. It's also just worth noting that, uh, you know, Republicans just did not, I think, end up recruiting as strong candidates uh, in those three states as, as, as Republicans had hoped. So those three states are looking maybe a little safer for Democrats than they would have expected a year or two ago. Um, if you look down below, something similar can be found with um, um, what incumbents are raising uh, with Florida and Wisconsin, but interestingly, their Democratic challengers are actually uh, uh, matching them. Um, but obviously a, a major uphill climb for Val Demings um, with Rubio. And then Wisconsin um, with Alex Lasser, you've got a self-funder who's got a lot of cash and that's looking like a, a toss up to, to maybe moving to the lean top. So all that said, um, safe probably to call the Senate a toss up, although I think we can say safely today that you could say with a straight face that it's looking slightly better for Democrats to hang on by a thread maybe picking up one seat or hanging on to a 50-50 Senate where the vice president continues to be that time vote. So that's a quick look into the crystal ball, Mike. All right. Thanks, George. Um, maybe we'll just keep plugging along here and then circle back for questions if uh, folks have any.
uh, but appreciate George that uh, that outlook and of course this is all stuff that we keep in mind as we're working on um, our legislative priorities in Congress um, but in general you know the stuff we're working on is, uh, we have to work across the aisle we work with everyone we work who's there in Congress at this moment in time and um, you always want to know what's what's coming up ahead but um, but uh, at the same time, we'll uh, we'll keep plugging away regardless, and, and hopefully be able to find champions no matter what. Hey, Mike, just quickly, I should add, I think something that's really important to consider that we talk about that's worth sharing is we would be derelict in our duties if we were not trying to take advantage of um, the status of some of these of some of these House members or senators who are in the really tough races. If you want to build a good attention, oftentimes one of the best things you can do is have a vulnerable member carry it. Because when they go talk to leadership in an election year, uh, they get to cut the line and go right to the head of line. And if they can convince a member of leadership that the legislation in question is important to them and it's important to their race, then that can benefit us. And we've had success doing that in the past. And it's something we're always looking to do, opportunism here and there where we can find it. Right. I see Daniel Nussbaum on here thinking of... Uh... His former congressman Joe Cunningham, that we work closely with um, on America's Conservation Enhancement Act and a few other things, when he was in a tough reelect. Um, so yes, that is another aspect we we do keep in mind. So, uh, all right, well we'll shift, and of course we can come back if folks have um, uh, political questions for George. But let's segue into more nitty gritty fisheries and trade and commerce issues that we're working on at ASA. Uh, before we get into the issues, and I'll I'll turn it over to the other staff to update on what they're doing. Just wanted to remind, uh, or if folks aren't aware, um, show how we are staffed at ASA. We've um, grown our staff a decent amount over the last several years with really really quality experts in fisheries issues um, that uh, with a particular uh, expertise on the issues uh, in the regions that they cover. Um, to where we've pretty much got our bases covered, not to say we're working on every single possible issue that could possibly be going on. I'll get to that in a second, but um, have staff to handle um, the major jurisdictions where fisheries policy issues are discussed. Um, and, and folks will, uh, you'll, you'll hear from each of them here in a little bit, but um, our most recent hire on the West Coast, Larry Phillips, as uh, our Pacific Fisheries Policy Director handling Pacific Fishery Management Council, North Pacific Council and state issues. Uh, mostly California, Oregon, Washington, a little bit in Alaska and Hawaii as those issues come up. Uh, in the southeast, we've got Martha Gaius, who um, joined last fall from uh, previously with Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, who handles Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management Council, South Atlantic Fishery Management Council, as well as um, Florida state issues in the southeastern states, um, as well as Gary Jennings, who's our Keep Florida Fishing Director, who does all things Florida. Um, and uh, supports many of the issues that we deal with in that state. And uh, and Ken Haddad, who's been with ASA for a while, is our Marine Fisheries Advisor, who primarily handles Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management Council issues, but uh, but does much more than that, just given his uh, many decades of expertise in, in fisheries issues. Uh, Mike Wayne has been uh, with us since fall of 2018, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, and handles um, uh, Mid-Atlantic, New England, Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, Commission issues, so striped bass, uh, Manhattan, summer flounder, uh, offshore wind, uh, you name it. And then there's still a team of us here in D.C., um, myself, George, uh, and Annie is our policy fellow. Um, Connor Bevin is also based here in, in D.C., but Connor handles our inland issues. So a lot of states to cover, so a lot of prioritization comes with that, as well as um, more inland freshwater focused issues um, that are, are federal, either Congress or federal agency issues too. So that's how we're staffed. Uh, I mentioned prioritization. We get a lot of issues thrown at us um, or monitor a lot of issues, but in terms of those that we are really actively engaged in, uh, our government affairs committee a few years ago uh, helped us develop these guidelines to help uh, for, for considering ASA involvement. Um, how we identify the issues where we can have, you know, the biggest bang for the buck, where we can um, really truly influence the outcome in a way that's most beneficial to the industry. You can see the guidelines here. There has to be a benefit to the industry angler. Uh, there has to be general member agreement, not necessarily unanimous 100%, but in general, broad uh, 
consensus agreement that, uh, that this is an issue worth getting involved in. Uh, importantly, can ASA affect the outcome? Sometimes that gauges how much we'll get involved in an issue and to what degree. Um, this happens a lot with state and local issues. Is it a parochial issue that's just sort of a one-off? Or is it potentially precedent setting where it may start in this one state or this one locality, but has a clear potential to spread? Obviously, in that case, it would uh, bump higher up on the prioritization level. Uh, ASA is a distinct voice, which generally being the trade association representing you in the industry, um, we often do have that distinct voice to talk more about jobs and economics and business, um, in addition to more of kind of your angler-centric voices or conservation-centric voices that will be involved in issues. And then importantly, local capacity, especially as we're dealing with, um, with state, local, regional issues. Uh, it's not going to happen often where ASA is going to swoop in uh, from Washington, D.C. and tell uh, state capital or state commission how to manage its fisheries. So having that local capacity boots on the ground to help, um, you know, that we can help join those efforts and add that distinct voice is, is really valuable too. So with that in mind, let's then switch to some of the issues that we're working on. And I'll start first and cover uh, some of the top national issues um, that, uh, that are on our radar that we have been focusing on and will continue to focus on. Um, so the first one we'll touch on is, it goes by a lot of different names, the China Competitiveness, competitiveness Bill, uh, the House version of this was called the America Competes Act. The Senate version was called uh, USICA, United States Innovation and Competitiveness Act. I think that's what it's called. Um, but ultimately, this is a, these are fairly different bills between the House and the Senate that deal um, with uh, overall U.S. competitiveness um, in the global marketplace with semiconductors and otherwise uh, with a particular focus on China. However, it's sort of been what they call in D.C. a Christmas tree where a lot of uh, separate but related items have been tacked on. So there's a few trade issues that we are particularly focused on um, that are wrapped up in these negotiations. Just so to be clear, both bills have passed their respective chambers. There is a conference committee that's been formed that is hashing out the differences, and that is uh, an ongoing um, negotiation that involves a bunch of different committees and almost 100 members of Congress that are all negotiating this. Um, but again, from our standpoint, there are a few trade issues, particularly dealing with China tariffs and um, re or restarting uh, previously granted tariffs that have since expired, as well as reinitiating a uh, process to request exclusions from China tariffs, which has been on pause for a while. So getting another bite at the apple, as well as um, essentially grandfathering in where exclusions were given to, to previous um, to, to previous products imported from China, that those tariff exclusions would, would continue in the future. Uh, as well as there's a separate trade issue dealing with uh, something called miscellaneous tariff bills that uh, provide duty reductions um, on a wide range of products. Uh, there are a few types of reels, lures, uh, apparel that currently could have duty reductions based on petitions that were filed. Um, and also a, uh, initiating a new process for other products and other companies to request uh, reductions in duties, which is something we plan to get more engaged in uh, should that go forward. There are also a few natural resource provisions in the mix, uh, including a driftnet modernization bill that we've been working on for a while that would, um, that would phase out large mesh drift gill nets off the West Coast. There's a bunch of good uh, provisions in there to restore coral reefs as well as some um, invasive species control measures that, um, that are related to something that Connor will speak to later. So something that's very much up in the air, there's a lot still to be resolved here, but I think in general, a lot of motivation to get this done, just a bunch of details to get sorted out. Uh, another one that's uh, we've been spending a lot of time on is called the uh, Outdoor Recreation Act or America's Outdoor Recreation Act. This is a bundle of a wide range of uh, provisions to improve uh, public land management, outdoor recreation opportunities, including fishing on uh, federal lands. So national parks, national forests, U.S. Fish and Wildlife refuges, um, uh, and a few others. This is something we've been working with the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable on. Uh, it would help improve visitation data, help improve management, help prioritize recreation as land management agencies are developing management plans. Just a lot of really good stuff in here. This bill passed the Senate uh, Energy and Natural Resources Committee by uh, unanimous uh, approval, 
uh, every single member from Bernie Sanders to Mike Lee voted yes for this, just as an example of the broad support that this, that this provision has. So we're still on the Senate floor and then we're, we're uh, working to get this going in the House too, but this would be a really great win for all of us in the effort recreation space. Uh, America's, or sorry, Recovering America's Wildlife Act is another major legislative package that we've been working with many others on that would provide approximately $1.4 billion uh, to state fish and wildlife agencies, tribal governments, territories to help conserve at-risk fish and wildlife species. Uh, we often point out that this isn't just wildlife, fish are, are uh, benefiting from this too. So this just passed the House earlier this week. There's still some details to get worked out in terms of getting this through the Senate, but um, we've had this pass out of the Senate committee. We've had it pass out of the House. So we're getting really, really close to getting this done and uh, would be a huge benefit to help supplement things like the Sport Fish Restoration Trust Fund and provide states with additional resources for the uh, increasing management demands that are placed on them. And then lastly, in terms of national issues, I have to touch on uh, the 30 by 30 initiative. This is a global initiative to conserve or protect 30% of all lands and waters by the year 2030. That's where you get those numbers, 30 by 30. Um, this is taking a bunch of different forms from California, using it in a really concerning way to potentially create a bunch of new marine protected areas. But the, uh, thankfully, the Biden administration, as it has um, taken on this 30 by 30 initiative, has been viewing it in a much more collaborative, um, transparent, um, participatory way that really embraces outdoor recreation and um, and is, is viewing this as an opportunity to increase access to the outdoors, not restrict it, which is our concern. If, uh, the, if, the, if the goal here is to create 30% uh, protected areas where no one can go, including to fish, that's gonna be a big concern. But instead, uh, again, what we're seeing so far from the, the Biden administration is viewing this much more in a uh, you know, voluntary, good conservation um, in a way that embraces um, outdoor recreation and recreational fishing. So something we continue to monitor, not only at the federal, but also at the state level, uh, but the big priority that will continue to be on our radar. So with that, I will then segue into our regional issues. And our first one up, I mentioned pictures for all those, but um, nevertheless, so let's shift over to Connor Bevan. Connor, as I mentioned before, is our Inland Fisheries Policy Manager and uh, does a great job tracking a lot of work that's going on in the states as well as uh, federally, and uh, you'll get a taste of that here. So Connor, I will turn it over to you. Thanks, Mike. So three of our major uh, freshwater and, and inland uh, fisheries issues that we're working on. First off, the Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative Act, uh, we call this MIRI for short, it's a bit, a bit of a mouthful, uh, is modeled off of other regional restoration programs for watershed-wide restoration conservation uh, activities that really have made measurable uh, impacts on uh, restoring wildlife, restoring fish habitat, uh, and uh, restoring sport fishing opportunities in watersheds like the Chesapeake, the Great Lakes, Lake Tahoe has an initiative as well. It's a non-regulatory initiative uh, that would apply to the 10 main stem Mississippi River states uh, to protect fish uh, and, and the river from runoff, from harmful algal blooms, uh, while restoring habitat and preventing and controlling aquatic invasive species. Uh, so the bill we're working on uh, has been introduced in the House by Representative Betty McCollum of Minnesota. Uh, we're working with partners uh, and members to encourage Republicans uh, to sign on and co-sponsor this bill. Uh, we're building momentum as well towards a Senate introduction, uh, but our major focus right now is encouraging uh, bipartisan support of this, uh, encouraging Republicans to sign on and co-sponsor this bill uh, because uh, Similar initiatives, the, the uh, initiatives that this bill is modeled after have uh, classically and historically enjoyed uh, substantial uh, bipartisan support, both in their initial authorizations and in uh, subsequent reauthorizations. Uh, so working on bicameral outreach uh, to Republicans to encourage uh, co-sponsorship. Uh, secondly, uh, the Aquatic Invasive Species uh, Commission uh, is a commission that brings together uh, many of the groups and companies in the fishing, boating, and uh, outdoor recreation space uh, to launch a commission kind of stylized after the Morris Deal uh, Commission, which delivered recommendations uh, on marine uh, recreational fisheries management. Uh, this is an attempt to take a really holistic look at the aquatic invasive species problem. Uh, and I say holistic because, you know, as we know, uh, invasive species like zebra mussels, Asian carp, Eurasian green crab don't respect borders or boundaries and, you know, have such, you know, uh, crisscross uh, across dozens of federal agencies, states, 
uh, tribes and the jurisdictions underlying each. So all these different actors uh, on the federal state level are brought in at different processes uh, and, and uh, levels of the controlling uh, prevention and detection process for aquatic invasive species. Uh, so the commission is going to try to offer uh, recommendations on uh, incentivizing cooperation, uh, bringing together these different actors uh, to coordinate their approach to aquatic invasive species, uh, while prioritizing funding and investments and uh, encouraging uh, engagement of key stakeholders in, in this management. So early stakeholder meetings for the commission are going to start ramping up and be conducted throughout the summer. Uh, for those of you who are joining us uh, at ICAST in Orlando in July, uh, our Angler Bode Working Group uh, is going to be meeting there on Thursday afternoon. So uh, we, we hope to, to see you there. But uh, this commission uh, is going to aim to have uh, recommendations and reports uh, ready by the end of the year. Uh, is going to take these recommendations to Capitol Hill subsequently. Uh, and finally, to uh, end things on a positive note, uh, Pebble Mine, uh, as many of you guys uh, are, are aware and have followed the now 20-year battle over uh, the, the fight to save Bristol Bay from the impacts of large-scale gold uh, and copper mining continues. But the most recent news uh, in this, this long-standing debate uh, is uh, the um, recently released uh, proposed determination by the EPA that would essentially restrict mining discharge so as to effectively veto the Pebble Mine project uh, as is currently proposed. Uh, this marks a major step forward uh, in the fight against Pebble Mine, uh, but the EPA has been at the stage before and we need to call on the agency to finalize protections uh, for Bristol Bay under Section 404C of the Clean Water Act. Uh, this is a real opportunity to protect a $1 billion fishery uh, and it's set against the backdrop of yet uh, another uh, record sockeye salmon run uh, coming later this summer. So uh, really optimistic things on the timeline for Bristol Bay. Uh, with that, I'm going to pass that over to my next colleague. All right. Thanks, Connor. Uh, so next up, we have Mike Wayne, who's our Atlantic Fisheries Policy Director, who, as I mentioned earlier, covers uh, Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council, New England Council, Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, and and others. And Mike is a proud father of a uh, new baby girl, so has a lot on his hands. Uh, so if you hear any crying in the background, I'm just giving everybody advance notice, Mike. Just got your back here, just in case anybody hears anything. But with that, Mike, I will uh, turn it over to you to cover top issues in your region. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, it's been a busy time since I started at ASA, and it just seems to be getting busier both at home and uh, with work. Happy to go through a couple issues here. Um, as Mike mentioned, I've been with ASA for almost four years. And when I first started, um, we dug in on recreational management reform in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, and the work we were trying to do there was recognize that recreational fisheries are different from commercial fisheries and they deserve different management. Um, our data are different. Our fishery activity is different. Uh, so we really tried to work with managers and regulators to recognize that um, under uh, an initiative called Rec Reform. And so the major achievement uh, over the last several years actually just occurred last week. Uh, it was a lot of work getting there, but essentially the outcome was for fishery managers to use more information than just recreational catch estimates when they consider what the bag size and season limits should be for several mid-Atlantic species. So previously, they would just look at recreational harvest against a harvest limit, and they would set regulations on that difference. And so the new approach is going to also consider what the status of the resource is, and that's uh, mainly biomass status. So the healthier the resource is, um, the more liberal the measures are, and the poorer poor condition the resources, the more stricter the measure. So that seems like common sense, but that's not always the way it worked. Um, so that was a major outcome for several species, summer flounder, scop, black sea bass, and bluefish. Um, <clears throat> moving to a couple of other topics that have been keeping me busy, uh, striped bass management uh, has been ongoing to address an overfished and overfishing condition for that resource. Um, so stripers have 
experienced some recent management changes back in 2020. Uh, we supported an 18% reduction in harvest and overfishing. This is a really important fishery for our industry. Um, so we wanted to support conservation where it was needed. Uh, and then most recently, um, just this past year, they were working on looking back into the management plan and saying what needs to be changed. You know, we had a really abundant stock in the mid 2000s. How do we get to that back to that level? What kind of changes do we need? Um, generally speaking, the outcome of that management action was uh, some restrictions on uh, what a program called conservation equivalency, where the states use slightly different measures across the geographic range. So the idea was, okay, if we're trying to achieve the management outcomes that we need here, we need folks to have a more rigid regulatory framework to do it. Um, so some of that flexibility was minimized to help the stock rebuild. Um, and I'm, I'm, I might be one of the few, but I'm actually optimistic that we're headed in the right direction here. I think the reductions are gonna start showing uh, improvements to the stock. Um, and then the last one that I'll touch on is Virginia Menhaden. Um, so <clears throat> striped bass rely on Menhaden as forage. This is an issue that we've dug in on for a long time. Um, <clears throat> you know, Mike's working on the Forage Fish Conservation Act uh, to broadly uh, recognize forage and its importance. Uh, we've been specifically working in Virginia uh, asking the new governor there, Governor Yunkin, who's a Republican, new administration, uh, to consider moving the reduction fishery for Menhaden out of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, the idea in doing that is to basically give that area some protection to allow striped bass and other species that rely on Menhaden as forage, ample opportunity um, especially considering the Chesapeake Bay is a nursery area for uh, a lot of those species, especially striped bass. So given that striped bass is in trouble, we felt like it was really appropriate to work on the forage component of this and make sure the striped bass has what it needs to help it rebuild, in addition to all the sacrifices that the recreational sector is making on striped bass. So. Um, that's a quick run through of some top level issues. I'll pass it back to Mike and happy to answer questions as we uh, go on later in the talk. Okay, thanks, Mike. All right, let's go a little further south to Martha Gaius, who, as I mentioned before, is our Southeast Fisheries Policy Director. Martha's currently, he's, she's coming to us live from Key West, uh, the South Atlantic Fishery Management Council meeting where all sorts of fun has been had over the last few days. Uh, so Martha, thanks for taking time to, to join here and I'll turn to you to give uh, an update from your region. Sure, thanks. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Uh, hello from Key West. So let me tell you a little bit about um, what's happening at the South Atlantic with Red Snapper. Um, so last year we got a, an assessment that although it shows that we have a, a historically large abundance of red snapper and biomass of red snapper um, is still unfortunately undergoing overfishing and is overfished. Um, and so we are facing a two-day red snapper season this year. It's going to be July 8th and 9th um, for those of you in the southeast. Um, and so this week, um, more not so great news. Uh, the council has been discussing whether they should, you know, how to address uh, this continued overfishing that's been going on in this fishery. And uh, the uh, reason for that overfishing right now the, uh, is that people are discarding so many red snapper, which, you know, makes a lot of sense when you have a two-day season on the on the books. And so, one of the things that the council talked about uh, for addressing uh, reducing discards is potentially large area closures uh, from South Carolina to Central Florida um, and or potential severe seasonal closures, not just for red snapper, but for all snapper grouper species 
um, from North Carolina to Florida. So not great news. Uh, we don't have a lot of details of what this might look like. The council's pretty upset about it, uh, but we'll have a better idea of what this looks like when the council meets uh, in September in Charleston. Um, meanwhile, we have the Atlantic Red Snapper count occurring. Um, this is similar to what occurred in the Gulf, and what they're doing is providing an in independent uh, estimate of abundance for red snapper in the Atlantic, and that will hopefully feed into the next stock assessment for Atlantic red snapper, which is gonna start in 2024. So um, that was a, the science for that was championed by Congressman Rutherford from Northeast Florida. And so hopefully that will help provide us some better information to counteract some of the bad news that we've been getting on South Atlantic red snapper. Um, in the Gulf on red snapper, we are, um, now in a couple years into state management of the private recreational fishery. Um, one of the issues we're working through right now is uh, how to reconcile the state data collection programs that are in place for the private anglers in their states as they're now used to monitor the quotas. And we have to reconcile that with the federal uh, marine recreation information program um, data that has been used for stock assessments. Uh, NOAA is um, pushing that we have some sort of common currency so that we can translate landings from one system to another. And so um, we have some calibration ratios that the NOAA scientists in the Southeast have worked on uh, so that the direct comparisons can be made. For some states, they work out pretty well and don't really affect um, what future seasons would be once you've used these conversions. But unfortunately for Alabama and Mississippi, the conversions are pretty different and uh, would result in shorter seasons uh, for them. And so um, it's looking like NOAA is moving towards implementing this, these calibrations starting next year, although there are ongoing conversations between NOAA and the state on how to um, improve these calibrations. And so um, that is ongoing. We're not exactly sure how that's going to shake out at this point, uh, but could be helpful. Uh, next week, the Gulf Council is meeting in Fort Myers, Florida, and they are going to be discussing potentially increasing the Gulf-wide red snapper quota by about 1.2 million pounds starting next year, uh, based on advice from their scientific advisors um, that have now considered the results of the Great Red Snapper Count. Um, and so this, this quota increase would be based on the Great Red Snapper Count, and so hopefully they push that forward uh, next week. And then lastly, in the Gulf, uh, the stock assessment for red snapper is underway right now. They are looking at how to include the great red snapper count estimates in that assessment. Um, although, and they will be using, unfortunately, not the state data, but they'll be using MRIP um, for recreational landings on that. So we are monitoring that closely and hopefully um, in the end with the great red snapper count data feeding directly into the assessment we have a good outcome there um, on to everglades restoration we've gotten a lot of really great news about everglades over the last i don't know a couple months so um, the latest i'd say is uh, from at the state level the florida legislature and then governor DeSantis just signed um, the budget for fiscal year 22-23 that starts july 1st and that includes uh, about $500 million for Everglades restoration, um, and then a whole bunch of other money for water quality improvements throughout Florida. Um, so that's really positive news. And that's on top of, at the federal level, um, earlier this year we got a $1.1 billion uh, fund uh, from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act for Everglades restoration, and then uh, President Biden has committed about $265 million um, of a requested 407 million for Everglades restoration. He's committed the 265 million for the Everglades or the EAA reservoir, um, which is one of the top priority projects uh, for Everglades restoration to help move water south to Florida Bay. So um, lots of positive news there. We are currently advocating for authorizing one of the next projects for Everglades restoration in this year's WERDA bill. Um, we're not sure if it's going to make it yet, um, but there's conversations between 
the Army Corps of Engineers and the South Florida Water Management District about how to keep those projects moving forward if uh, this project does not get reauthorized in uh, WERDA this year, because it'll be two years before they take that up again. Um, and then I will move into Louisiana, Menhaden. Um, like Mike in, in uh, Virginia, we've been working at the state level down there um, with a coalition of partners to promote conservation of Menhaden. So Louisiana's legislative session just wrapped up, um, and in this session, Representative Ogeron introduced a bill that we supported that would have capped the industrial Menhaden harvest in Louisiana. Um, and provided some critical harvest information to fisheries manage managers and allow for a basic level of protection for Louisiana's coastal resources because right now the industrial Menhaden industry in Louisiana essentially runs without a lot of regulatory oversight. So the bill made it through the House, um, but unfortunately did not make it out of the Natural Resources Committee in the Senate. Um, it was not it was deferred um, to a future hearing, which unfortunately ran out the clock um, because legislative session was about over at that point. So um, we're really happy with the progress that we made. We knew it was going to be tough getting that bill signed into the law this year, um, but I think we made a lot of progress in drawing attention to this issue and um, hope for more progress uh, potentially in future legislation if this sessions if this comes up again. I will say there was another Menhaden reporting bill in Louisiana this year that did make it to the governor's desk. Uh, it is pending signature at this point. Um, and this legislation um, would require commercial harvesters to submit monthly reports about their trips. So a little bit less vigorous than what we had asked for, but I'd like to think that um, the bill that we were supporting probably helped uh, move this one along and um, hopefully you know, we're making incremental progress every year and hopefully we'll continue that. So I will stop there and turn it back over to Mike. Okay, thanks, Martha. Uh, and last up is Larry Phillips. So uh, again, Larry's our most recent hire, been with us about three months uh, from out in Washington State, handling Pacific issues. So Larry, I'll turn to you to cover um, all that's going out on the West Coast. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, coming to you from Olympia, Washington today, definitely not the Florida Keys, uh, but uh, rainy Washington. Um, three months on, so uh, uh, learning a lot, but a couple things I want to highlight today. Obviously, Columbia River gill netting is front and center in the Northwest uh, fish politics. The, uh, the challenges are, are many. Um, these are legacy fisheries that have been occurring for three, four generations, so you can imagine the the opposition to change. Uh, the challenge for us in Washington and Oregon is the, the fisheries are are currently, uh, many of the stocks are ESA listed and those, uh, those are limiting fisheries. Uh, Non-selective, non-tribal commercial gill nets uh, require a significant portion of the total allocation to operate a fishery. And those have, have, uh, have been uh, in particularly a challenge relative to constraining seasons and shorter, shorter seasons um, and bag limits for recreational fishing. The states of Oregon and Washington uh, cooperatively manage with our, with the treaty tribes cooperatively manage this, this fishery and they have not been um, in, in uh, coordination or, or consistent with each other in terms of policy. Um, but uh, there have been a, a variety of different implementation policy implemented that are working toward limiting the impact of gill nets on these constraining stocks. Um, most recently, the governor, Inslee of Washington, implemented a buyback program about, well, excuse me, authorized a buyback program of about $15 million. Uh, still, the details are still to be worked out, but um, we believe it's a, a step in the right direction. Um, and the ASA will continue to engage and advocate for legislation and policies that support and maximize recreational fishing on the lower Columbia River. Another issue that we're working on is the drift gillnet um, fishery off the coast of California. Um, Council originally uh, adopted a proposal to implement hard caps for the drift gillnet fishery in 2015. And for a variety of reasons, um, that, that uh, implementation didn't happen. 
Um, the purpose of the proposed action is to incentivize fishing practices and tools in an effort to minimize bycatch and bycatch mortality. Um, anywhere from uh, 30 to 60 percent of the of the uh, encounters are of um, non-target species, and some of those uh, impacts are also on uh, ESA-listed marine mammals and potential and have been sea turtles. Um, the, in 2021, the um, highly migratory species management team was tasked with developing a range of alternatives, um, options for council consideration in 2022, and at the most recent meeting, Pacific Fisheries Council meeting, um, those, that presentation was made and those alternatives were presented. And uh, I'm not exactly sure, but within the next few meetings, those uh, alternatives will be considered by the council for implementation. And then the last issue is uh, just being remaining engaged in offshore wind energy. And I know Mike, Wayne, and others have been involved in a similar conversation on the East Coast. On the West Coast, uh, it seems the pedal is down from our federal and, and state uh, folks that are, that are working toward implementation of offshore wind. And there's four call areas at the, they're under various levels of consideration and permitting for, for leases of offshore wind energy, um, ranging from California to Washington State. And uh, those are um, slated to, to go up for auction at various different timeframes, but as soon as next month, you know, down in California, at which time the successful uh, lease uh, that are awarded will go under review. We'll, we'll develop a uh, construction and operation plan within the next five years for implementation and uh, at that time it'll trigger the environmental assess environmental impact assessments that hopefully will um, provide uh, the recreational fish community the voice at the table that we don't believe has been happening up until this point. Um, we've been pushing hard to be included in conversations. Obviously offshore wind energy, particularly in Oregon where the, the potential call areas will be within 20 miles of the shore, have a a real possibility to significantly impact the recreational fishing um, uh, industry in, in a variety of different ways. But our hope is we will um, find a way to be successful at getting to the table and voicing our concerns, which really has been difficult up until now. Um, so uh, I think I'll leave it at that and we'll answer questions when, uh, when that opportunity is there. Okay, thanks, Larry. Um, so I'll end here before turning to a few minutes of questions. Um, you know, we've got several avenues that we push information out. Uh, hope everyone here gets our Keep America Fishing action alerts. We've been sending a bunch lately, including on Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Uh, if you're in Virginia, the Virginia Menhaden petition that Mike Wayne mentioned, uh, several others. So make sure you're receiving those and um, not only taking action, but uh, spreading the word to colleagues, friends, family, and everyone else. Um, hopefully you're receiving ASA emails because we've got a, a lot of information we're pushing out through there uh, from press releases, newsletters, statements, uh, et cetera. Uh, fun little project we started a few months ago, the Politics of Fish podcast, um, where we do something like this, where we, we kind of do a deeper dive on a given policy issue or organization, someone, uh, someone or some group that's involved in fisheries policy and outdoor recreation policy and conservation. So uh, check that out if you're into podcasts and uh, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that. And then of course on social media, we've got a bunch going on there, much beyond just uh, government affairs work, but all sorts of ASA information and fishing information on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, LinkedIn. So um, we've got a few minutes left here. Appreciate folks for, for hanging in with us. Uh, if you've got questions, you can either chat them or put them in the chat box. I saw Jeff Parnell asked, will we be sending this deck to attendees? And yes, we will send this around. We'll also um, post this uh, presentation on our YouTube page so that anyone, anyone that couldn't join can watch it later on. Uh, we'll probably turn the audio version of it into a podcast episode too, so people can view it there. So Again, if you've got questions, uh, feel free to unmute yourself and ask or put something in the chat box. And in the meantime, while folks are gearing up for that, George, I had a question for you. I'm going to put you on, on the spot here. Um, President Trump.
Trump has been looming large in a lot of primaries so far and seems the results have been mixed. So what's your kind of overview of level of impact that Trump's had so far um, and how might that continue as we get away from primary season and into the general election season? Yeah, I think that's the key point at the end. It's one thing to measure his level of influence in primaries, and you kind of have to take this case by case. You know, it was, it was awful in Georgia. It was in better places. I mean, just ask Tom Rice down in South Carolina, who got knocked out, who got demolished on um, on Tuesday. Um, it's been a mixed bag, to be sure. But the real question is, particularly with these January 6 hearings continuing on, is his presence going to, how, how he's gonna influence independent, moderate voters, um, particularly as Democrats. So just let's just look at the Ohio Senate race, for example, with J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan. You know, J.D. Vance uh, six years ago was saying that Trump's awful and you know, convening war rooms in Washington, talking about how to save the Republican party. Fast forward, He's doing a full embrace and, and, and got uh, an endorsement that appeared to be very helpful to him in winning that primary. As he moves forward into the general, if you're going to win in Ohio, you know, he's going to have to have obviously the moderate Democrats, I'm sorry, moderate Republicans and pick up some slice of uh, the independent voters in Ohio. Um, Tim Ryan will really go to work on him and just sort of exposing this, this contradiction. And, I, it, you know, it, there, there are a lot of conventional thinking about, about Trump and where things are with the Republican Party, they would say, well, that, that's, that's going to be problematic for J.D. Vance. But I, I don't know. It's just very hard to say. Um, um, we'll have to wait and see. The early polling now with Ohio primaries having, have, Republican primary have been set, have that as a closed race. Um, you know, you can see the similar thing in, in Pennsylvania with, with Dr. Oz and where, as he's gone along and, and the degree to which he keeps talking about Trump. Um, you know, if there's one example from that's recent that people can point to, it's it's the governor's race in Virginia, where the governor, by in the opinion of most Republican, I think, um, sort of professional campaign people, got it right in terms of not pushing Trump away, but also not giving him a big bear hug. And I think you're going to see a lot of these Republicans as they come through the primary process shifting to that sort of posture. But it is it is hard to say. I think at the end of the day, most voters are going to be focused much more on their pocketbook issues and what they're experiencing in their day-to-day -day life. And we're all going to spend a lot of time in Washington talking about the Trump factor and all the political prognosticators are going to be focused on that. But the economy is so far and away uh, the biggest consideration, gas prices and everything that goes along with it, the interest rate hike and the potential of, of really going to a recession, I think it's going to be so much more powerful than any of the noise around that, that that's going to be much more of a determining factor. Okay, thanks, George. Um, it's been fascinating to watch so far, and I'm sure more to come. Um, we did get a question in from Patrick Knowles, who asked, uh, there's an email blast last week regarding legislation seemingly in the works that would limit the use of lead fishing tackle. Is there someone, slash someone at ASA we could reach out to, to get more information? Uh, yeah, that would be me and Patrick. I'm happy to follow up with more information. I think what you're referring to is a statement we put out. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, announced a rule, and this has been kind of a regular occurrence where every once or twice a year they will announce uh, expanding hunting and fishing access at national wildlife refuges, which there's 500 or so of them all around the country. Um, this time it came with the just, uh, important caveat that lead fishing tackle and ammunition would not be allowed in several of the refuges in which hunting and or fishing was being expanded. This really applied to two, two wildlife refuges in terms of fishing. Um, our big concern is the sort of camel's nose under the tent that this is creating. And for an agency that, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that's supposed to be a you know, science-based fish and wildlife agency, to do this without any sort of scientific justification, without identifying, you know, what specific wildlife species they viewed as being threatened by lead tackle to justify a wholesale ban um, is really problematic. Uh, I and several other 
uh, sportsman's groups had a meeting earlier today with the Deputy Secretary of Interior to talk about this and express concerns. Uh, we were reminded that this is a proposal this time, but um, I think we've still got a lot more work to do to um, push the Fish and Wildlife Service away from this direction, which it's partly about the actual lost opportunity at these handful of areas, but the broader concern is lack of scientific justification to ban lead tackle and what, where could we see that going in the future um, to do much more large scale uh, restrictions going forward. So yeah, it's something, you know, we're starting conversations uh, with folks in the administration about this, but we'll also be uh, pushing information out to industry to get more folks to uh, engage and um, express their position on it as well through Keep America Fishing as well as um, just general ASA uh, communications. Any other questions anyone wants to jump in and ask? Recognizing we're right at an hour or so. Hey Mike, can I ask a question? Is this John? Yeah, good afternoon. Um, yeah, go for it, John. Yeah, thanks. Um, hey, just wanted to first um, just mention great work by Mike Wayne um, and the, um, the ASA team on passing that harvest control rule. I really think that has a lot of potential, um, you know, the principles of that around the country improving recreational fisheries management. So uh, good job to you guys on, on getting that done. Um, a lot of buzz that we're hearing, you know, just in, in my region here um, is, is coming around the recent um, request for public comment on the nomination of the Hudson Canyon as a possible National Marine Sanctuary um, as they go through that vetting process and develop a draft environmental impact statement. Um, you know, if everyone kind of recalls, there was a whole host of nominations that were being thrown around in that last year of Obama's term, and we expect probably some of those, you know, um, to come, you know, resurface again. So I was just kind of curious where ASA was on that particular one and, and what the strategy was going to be as that moves forward um, and anticipating any others popping up. Just kind of curious on your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, and yeah, we've been starting to dig into that one. Um, you know, as you know, you know, when you talk about marine protected areas, that can take a lot of different forms. Marine sanctuaries are a type. Uh, and within the National Marine Sanctuaries Program, you know, compared to a lot of other types of protected areas, um, recreational fishing tends to do okay. I think 98 or so percent of sanctuary waters are open to recreational fishing in some form. Now that, you know, it's not, that, that sometimes does carry additional restrictions with it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that a sanctuary is a closed area. So um, yeah, in our initial read of the nomination for the Hudson Canyon Marine Sanctuary, uh, the only reference to fishing is a, a pat on the back to the great job the Mid-Atlantic Council's done through um, the uh, bottom gear closures that have already been implemented in the deep water canyons, including Hudson, uh, to the unmanaged forage fish amendment, to uh, yeah, the overall lack of overfished stocks. So it doesn't seem like the early push here is to do any sort of additional fishing restrictions as part of this. It seems more about research and education and that type of thing. But, you know, as you know well, John, these things can go off the rails pretty quick. So I, we're going to need to be on top of this and vigilant and uh, commenting and talking to the right people to make sure that as this moves forward, um, it doesn't go in a bad direction. And um, if the true intent is to not restrict fishing, that that needs to be very clearly and explicitly um, stated from the outset. So, um, so yeah, that's the hope, but um, something we're going to have to stay on top of. And again, it's early stages. It's just been announced as a nomination, so it has to go through a multi-year approval process if it does go through the sanctuary site nomination process. But um, yes, in terms of taking a step back in terms of like 30 by 30 as a whole, uh, in the marine space, uh, sanctuaries does seem to be the area where this administration's sort of leaning into um, to create a lot more sanctuaries. We've, we saw the Chumash National Heritage proposed area off of Southern California. Um, I think there's one or two in the Great Lakes that are in the works. So um, we're likely going to see more and more of those so we're going to you know, have to continue staying on top, but at least as of now, I have not seen any that seem to be, you know, fishing prohibition sanctuary part of that process. All right. Anyone else have any questions?
All right. Well, hearing none, thanks everyone for tuning in and uh, for all your involvement and support in ASA. Um, if you ever have any questions, feel free to reach out to me or any of the staff that you heard from here. Uh, always happy to, to talk this stuff through. Um, again, we'll send this slide deck around everyone that's on here. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks again. And um, hopefully we'll, we'll keep staying in touch. I hope to see many of you at ICAST next month. And um, uh, again, reach out if you got any questions. And uh, thanks again for your involvement and have a great rest of your day. We'll be back in a couple weeks with the next episode, but in the meantime, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and share the Politics of Fish podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks for listening and tight lines.